I've had people share with me since we've started this series on the way that God has been working in their life with things that they've had a hard time shaking for a long time. Every one of us would probably recognize that there are cycles of sin and dysfunction in our lives. There are things that you do that violate your own conscience that you, like that doesn't make any sense, right? Like if it bothers our own conscience, why do we keep doing this again? It's almost like the Apostle Paul was telling the truth when he said that somehow there's something at work on the inside against my own mind and heart, making me want to do things that I later wish I hadn't done over and over and over and over again. In fact, the Apostle Paul refers to this as the besetting sin, or the sin that so easily trips you up. And for me, that particular sin that trips me up easily might be different than the one that trips you up. And by God's grace, as we begin to follow God and find the freedom that comes from letting God have authority over every area of our life, we do find that whom the Son sets free is free indeed, and we do find freedom from those cycles of sin and dysfunction in our lives. Like, if you're a follower of Jesus, you'd call it a cycle of sin. If you're not a religious person, you'd refer to it as a cycle of dysfunction. But what's true in both cases is that we would all recognize that we have this. The bad news is that the Bible would actually say that all people everywhere in all time of all cultures are born of their predisposition toward dysfunction or, or sin. All of us have this. We all struggle with our sin and it kicks our tail. Did we get it from our parents? Did we pick it up by watching them or did we pick it up because we're a descendant of theirs? If I was raised by another family, would there be sins that would show up in my life because of who I was genetically that had nothing to do with the family that I was in environmentally? Like I think there's some evidence for that, right? Like some things seem to be born into us and other things we pick up along the way. The neat thing or the good news is that the Bible says that God has a long history and is capable and more than willing to set people free from their cycles of sin. Yes, like that sin, the big one that's in your heart. When we repent of that sin, when we come to acknowledge that that sin separates us from God, not his love, but in our relationship, in the same way that an offense would cause a relationship to be divided, it does this in our relationship with God. Not only have you created a debt, against the people you've sinned against, but our creator who will one day judge all of mankind is now keeping a record of that debt. We owe a debt to the people we sin against and to the God, right? Who's holding us accountable. Jesus pays off that debt through his death, burial, and his resurrection. And in his resurrection with new life, he offers new life to any person, according to John chapter 1, verse 12, who would believe him and receive him. To those people, the Bible says, he gives the right to become a child of God, even to those who believe in his name. And in the same way that an orphan has one identity and one name, when that child is adopted, he's given a new identity. And now that he has this new identity, there are different expectations, there's a different culture, there's a different tradition, there's a whole new life awaiting this kid. But the process of becoming like the other children takes time. It starts with 
this new identity. We talked about that last week. And that's the reason why you do things now that feel bad that before never bothered you at all. Why do they bother you now? It's because you're a new person. Like this fit your old DNA, but not your new DNA. So we've been looking at what Ephesians chapter 4 says. Verse 21, where it says, since we have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, your orphan ways, which is corrupted by lust and deception and is dominated by your cycle of sin. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. That's this Holy Spirit's job, who's once you turn from sin and begin following Jesus. The Holy Spirit becomes a part of your life and begins to change your thoughts and your attitudes. That's his part. My job is to let him do that, to not actively resist what God is trying to do in my heart. But he gives us something a little bit more active to work on in the next verse. Verse 24 says, so put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. But what does that mean, to put on my new nature? Tangibly speaking, can you give me a couple of handles that I can, like something concrete I can work on that helps me put on my new nature, which is a created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. And I think I can. I think I can show you something from the Bible that's tangibly gonna help make this a little bit more concrete for you. There's a story of four Jewish guys, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You might know who these guys are. You probably, religious or not, you've heard of Daniel in the lion's den, probably. And if you went to CCD as a kid or were raised in Sunday school or been a Christian for a while, you might know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In fact, you probably do. What you might not know is the history of how they got to where they got. Uh, Assyria had, you can Google this or Wikipedia it, but Assyria takes over the known world, coming across the Fertile Crescent, conquering, kicking butt everywhere they went. Babylonian comes, Babylonia comes, Babylon, sorry, comes right in behind them, eating them all up and then going even farther. And when Babylon gets down to the bottom part of Israel, they conquer Jerusalem. Assyria didn't get that far. Babylon did. And when they did, they did something tactically smart. They kidnapped all of the elite, all of the educated, all of the young, all of the healthy, all of the trained military officers, and they brought them into um, the heart of Babylon. And they treated them as Babylonians so that they would begin to embrace this new way of life, this new culture, these new values, so that they would forget who they once were and they would become Babylonians. They would forget their gods, they would forget their ways. And what you see is all of Israel that does this, they all fall into the Babylonian cycles of sin and dysfunction, with the exception of these four guys. And these four guys do a few things that keep them out of those cycles. And I'm thinking that if you and I did those things that they did to stay out of the cycles, that that would help us pull away from the cycles of our own. And the first thing the Bible says that they did was that they were willing to do what other people were not willing to do. That's the first thing. If you want to actually break this cycle, one, you have a new identity, right? Let the Holy Spirit work in your heart. But practically speaking, you need to be willing to do what other people are not willing to do. In Daniel chapter one, here's what I see. Verse three. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. 
Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure that they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens, and they were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter into the royal palace in service as apprentices. And then someday, if they rose up through the ranks, move into government and become rulers and governors throughout the Babylonian empire. Verse six, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. Now, the story is about these four guys, and who knows how many hundreds or thousands of Jews were brought to Babylon. And all of them did what everybody else was doing the reason why these four guys are selected is because they don't do what everybody else did. So they got what nobody else got. Verse 7, the chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belt, excuse me, Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was Meshach, Meshach, sorry. And Azariah was called Abednego. Verse 8, but Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. And he asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. In verse 12, he goes on to say, so please test us. So he's the spokesperson, but he's not only asking for himself, he's asking for him and these three other guys. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had all made the same determination not to defile themselves. They were willing to do what nobody else was willing to do. So as far as we know, they're the only Jews who were willing to do what nobody else did. They stuck with what the Torah said regardless. And it didn't matter to them what everybody else was doing, only what God said to do. I'm, I'm sure the rest of the Jews had good justification. Like, I, I know what I would say. Like, why are you doing what God would want you to do when God hasn't done anything for you? Like, if God loved you, then why did, why did, why did Nebuchadnezzar come to Israel? Why did Israel lose? Why were you kidnapped? Why were your parents killed? Why were you made a slave? Why were you brought to this place? Right, like God, what, what is, and it didn't matter what anybody else said or what anybody else did. They made a conscious choice. I'm going to do what God wants me to do, even if nobody else is doing this. And I believe that the way that they avoided the cycle is how you and I are going to break the cycle. And that is through a relentless, un ruthless, unrelenting commitment to radical obedience in every area of our life. What this tangibly means is that regardless of my sexual orientation or attraction, I'm going to choose purity over indulgence. That's what I'm going to do. Regardless of my personal income, I'm going to choose to be generous whether I have a lot or a little. Like, why? Because the Bible says so. I'm going to give, not when I have a lot, but when I have when I have any, because this is what God wants me to do. Regardless of offense, I'm going to choose humility and the way of forgiveness. Regardless of how we've been treated, we're going to choose compassion and kindness. Whenever the culture points us away from Jesus, those who break the cycles of sin and dysfunction in their life just walk away from culture. Like right now, it's common that whatever you want to do sexually, do it. Heterosexual or homosexual. So 
Couples move in together before they get married. Christians do this. So should we be surprised when we still have the same relational dysfunction in our marriages and relationships as everybody else? When we're as sexually broken as everybody else, if we treat our sexuality the same way that everybody else treats it, we're going to get what everybody else gets. And this has nothing to do with what other people are doing. You don't find Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego criticizing any of the other Jews. They're just making a conscious decision for themselves. And I'm not asking you to make any judgments on anybody else. All I'm saying is, in every area of your life, if you genuinely want to break the cycles of sexual dysfunction in your family, financial dysfunction in your family, historical dysfunctions in your family, relational dysfunctions in your family. You personally must choose for yourself to do what God wants you to do, even if nobody else is doing that. Like you have to make a conscious decision to do what nobody else does. And what you're going to find is the second thing that I learned from these guys, and that is that we need to be willing to pay a price that other people aren't willing to pay. Like there is a cost associated with obedience to God. I think one of the easiest and least tense or nervous thing for me to talk about would be fasting. I love a McDonald's ice cream cone. Uh, a Chick-fil-A sandwich, and Wendy's french fries. That would be the perfect meal. But when I'm fasting, I have to say no to everything I want. Why would I deny myself of things that I want? To build up the willpower muscles to say no to the cycle of sin and dysfunction that I always want, right? Like you do what you want to do. Now you regret it as soon as you've done it. But at some point, you're going to have to do two things. One, you're going to have to choose to do what nobody else is willing to do. And that's to say no to themselves. Oh my gosh, like <laughs> I'm not worried about your sin. I'm worried about mine. Like your sin doesn't ruin my life. Do what you want with your life. My sin threatens to ruin every good thing that God has wanted to do in my life. It has sucked the joy out of so much of my life. I, I genuinely don't. Like how many times have you committed this cycle of sin and you've begged God for forgiveness and told yourself you would never do it again until what? You gave into that sin again, right? What you need is a radical commitment to doing what nobody else is willing to do. And that's to say no to the things that I want. But if I'm going to follow through on that, I need to recognize that there's going to be a price that I have to be willing to pay. And that's that makes sense though, right? Like if you're going to become physically fit, you're going to start waking up an extra hour earlier. And that's going to cost you something that you weren't paying before. But being willing to pay what other people aren't willing to pay is the way that you're going to get to the place where other people don't get. And you see this in the life of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
In Daniel chapter 3, verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue that I have set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, if you do what other people aren't willing to do, you'll have to pay what other people aren't willing to pay. He says, but if you refuse, you'll be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace, and then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? What would you do? Like, do what everybody else is doing, or keep your dumb commitment to not doing the wrong thing just because God said it was wrong, right? That's, that's one thing. But then if they said, all right, we're gonna watch, and if you do what God wants you to do, we're actually going to burn you alive. There's the furnace. I'm gonna throw you into it. What God will save you then? Then what do you do? I, got, I know what the right answer is. I know what answer I would give you. I just don't actually know what I would do. Here's what they did in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us. We think God can save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. We think God can do this. We believe that he will. Verse 18, but even if he doesn't, so I'm not even sure how much they believe that he will, but even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. We're not going to do it. Even if we die. Oh my gosh. Like Nebuchadnezzar lists the gold statue separately from his gods. And some theologians say that the reason why is that this gold statue, which, by the way, goes unnamed, which is also an unusual thing in Babylonian culture, that this God is the compromise for all of the people that he's bringing into his country who have a hard time worshiping Babylonian gods. He goes, all right, this is the God without a name. This, this is the God whose name you give it. That's who this is. But what I want you to do is I want you to be okay with your God and everybody else's God. I want you to... I want you to compromise. That's what I want you to do. Like you can be the follower of Yahweh as long as you're cool with the God of Dagon, the God of Baal, right? Or as long as you're just fine with all of the other idols, that's what you have to be okay with. So this choice is for them to worship God with these other idols and they have absolutely no hesitation. There's no mixing of God and idols. So truthfully, we're not to mix our worship of God with the idols of sexuality, popularity, money, respect, our kids' educational or athletic success or anything else. It's not that I'm going to be a Christian, but I'm going to sleep with this other person outside of marriage. Nope. There's no mixing. Like, you need to choose. I was talking with Greg Lewis, who's the video production guy for Grace Church about the teaching this weekend. And, and he, he said something, I said, I'm gonna use that. He said, the older I've gotten, and I think he's only 33. He said, the older I've gotten, the more I'm realizing I have to be black and white with my sin. There really is no gray. Yes, that's the lesson of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like you can't flirt with your sin while dating God. 
You know what I mean? Like you can't be in a relation, like you can't be on, like you can't be doing Weight Watchers while eating McDonald's, Chick-fil-A and Wendy's. Like you, you gotta pick, like, are you on a diet or not? Are you a Christian or not? Are you gonna follow Jesus or not? Like you can't, you can't say I'm gonna follow Jesus until it gets hard and then I'm gonna do my own thing because truthfully, you're not really following Jesus, you're following your appetite. I think that's what's so difficult for my wife and I as parents, raising our kids. Garrett's 27 now, and when he was in fourth grade, 10, so 17 years ago, Garrett made the basketball team at the, at the, um, the travel team. So we were gonna play other towns. So he's like in the elite club, right? Like AAU was just starting to get popular. Wasn't much of a big deal. Ryan was later on an AAU team, but we didn't really know any AAU teams when Garrett was in fourth grade. What we did know is that all the games were on the weekends. So we told the coach up front, we said any games are on Sunday morning, Garrett won't be at because we'll be at church. That was a decision that we made together, actually with Garrett. We said, hey buddy, if we're gonna do this basketball league, like what's most important to us? What's more important to us than, over any, than anything else? And he said, God. And I was like, absolutely. So if we have to choose between basketball and God, what do we go with? He says, we're gonna go with God. It's right. Here's what that means is that if there are games on a Sunday morning at the same time as church, where do you think we should be at? And he goes, church. And I said, I agree. And he goes, that stinks. I said, I agree, that stinks. It was really hard, man. And I was so proud of my son for making that decision. And yes, I did lead him into that decision. And as a dad, that's my job, to lead him into that decision. And that meant, to the coach's credit, since Garrett was gonna be missing one-fourth of all of the games every weekend, because there's Sunday, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon. So he's gonna miss 25% of all the games. Garrett never started, and he really never did. And I think he was good enough to start. And the reason why I say that is because when he was a freshman, they all tried out for the freshman team, and Garrett made it when some of the other kids that did start did not make the team. Which is the reason why I think he was probably good enough to make the starting team. But he just wasn't allowed to be a starter. So it was a sacrifice. It was a price that we, we had to pay and we were worried about that. What that would do to our son through his high school years. And, and, I, and we tell our kids that church is more important. And truthfully, church is the most important thing until something more important comes along. And then we go with that. And we are modeling something for our children that like if whatever step you go to, when they become adults, they'll go to that step plus one more. And let's say by skipping every Sunday morning game, my son ends up being a starter, let's say on the varsity team from freshman, then is it worth it for us to skip church as a family so that he can be a starter? What if it means that he gets a full ride scholarship to not just a D2 school, but a D1 school, is it worth it? And let's say that he becomes a starter as a freshman of that D1 school and they go to the March, they go to the tournament in March and he gets national attention and my son goes to the NBA. But in order for my son, and let's say going into the NBA, he becomes a Hall of Famer. If my son reaches the top and becomes a Hall of Famer, one of the greatest to ever play the game of basketball, but for him to get there meant that God took a back seat in every other way in his life, would that be worth it? And Jesus answers that question in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, 
If any of you wants to be my followers, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. Like, what do you think he meant by that? But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world or your kid gains the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? And the answer is no. Nothing is worth that. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego recognized if we spare our lives in order to compromise with God and lose our soul, we've lost everything. Therefore, I would rather be burned alive by Nebuchadnezzar than to walk away from God. But here's what I know, and this is, this is beautiful is that if you're willing to do what other people aren't willing to do, and you're willing to pay a price that other people aren't willing to pay, then you will get what other people will never get. Daniel chapter three, verse 24 says this. But suddenly Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound walking around in the fire unashamed, and that fourth one looks like a god. Who was that fourth one? <laughs> it was God. Like, this is another one of those theophanies that I talked about in the teaching last week, the physical manifestation of the presence of God. They, they walked with God in a furnace. Here's what's crazy. If there's no furnace then there's no, no story of them walking with God. Like that was the path towards intimacy with God. Had they not been willing to do what nobody else was willing to do, had they not been willing to pay a price other people were not willing to pay, they would never have gotten the moment. They got a moment with God that nobody else was able to get because they were willing to pay a price nobody else was willing to pay because they were willing to do what nobody else was willing to do. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace, and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads were singed, and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other god who can rescue like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. Which part of the story do you think they told their grandkids? Like, it's cool that the king agreed with them about God. That's cool. There's no doubt about it. And that probably changed Nebuchadnezzar's life. And it's awesome that they were promoted above everybody else in Babylon, that they were promoted even farther. That's awesome. But it is unbelievable that they walked with God in the flesh. Here's what I know, is that if you want to walk with God, you can't be facing the wrong direction.
You can't be facing the same direction as the rest of the world. If you want to break the cycle of sin in your life, you can't be standing in line with everybody else who's committing this sin. Like you're going to have to turn around. You're going to have to get out of that line. You're going to have to be black and white with your sin or it's going to kick your tail. You can't walk with God and flirt with the devil. But if you make the choice others won't make and you're willing to pay a price others won't pay, you'll get what others won't get. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 29. And everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be least important then and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. And you will get to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, the bad news in relation to my son is that he didn't get a basketball scholarship. The bad news is that he only played one year of high school basketball. The bad, years, the bad news is that he didn't play any college basketball. He played Henry Murrells, but that's it. But the good news is that my son is 27 years old and he married a godly woman who came to faith in Jesus at Grace Church. The good news is that my son is still actively involved in his church in downtown Denver with his wife. The good news is that he's still following Jesus. The good news, the bad news is that my son's not gonna make a lot of money. No one's gonna build monuments to him. Uh, his bust won't be in Springfield, Massachusetts in the Basketball Hall of Fame. The good news is that my son works for MANA, the missions organization that works to relieve poverty through churches around the world. The good news is while my son won't make a lot of money, he'll always make a difference. And I wouldn't trade that for a son in the NBA for anything in the world. Um, like each one of our kids grow up and make whatever decision they want to make. All I'm saying is what, what I, dear God in heaven, what I want them to see at home. <clears throat> As a dad who does the right thing, even if other people don't do it. A dad who's willing to pay a, a, a price. A dad who's willing to sacrifice to do the right thing. And I want them to see, and I pray, dear God, let my kids see the rewards of being faithful to you in all of the tangible and non-tangible ways. That's what I want. You can break the cycle of sin in your life. Excuse me. You can't break the cycle of sin in your life by asking why this happened to you. You break the cycle of sin by asking what you should do next. The Jews were asking, why did Nebuchadnezzar come to Israel? Why did the Babylonians win? Why were they taken captive? Maybe you're asking, why were you hurt as a kid? Why did your parents get a divorce? Why did she cheat on you? Why did they hurt you? Why were you exposed to that at such a young age? And why did that happen to me? The question isn't why. The question is, what does God want me to do now? Do that and watch God do things in your life nobody thought was possible. And this works for anybody who's in the room. Why did the church fail you as a kid? Why did you become an atheist? Why are you so angry and unhappy? It's not the question. The question is, what are you going to do now? You need to do what other people are not willing to do. 
You need to repent of your sin and call on God to forgive you and save you. Regardless of the cost, you need to set boundaries around the sin that so easily uh, trips you up. And you need to determine on the front end what you will and won't do. Don't flirt with it either, black and white. Trust that God sees you, hears you, and is walking with you through the struggle in your cycle of sin and dysfunction. Stop flirting with your sin. Determine not to corrupt yourself with the king's meat. And whether you get what you want or don't, you're going to do what God wants no matter what. And on the other side, trust that God sets you free, gives you all that you need, and will do more than you ever dreamed or asked. Let's pray. Dear God, all of us are born with a predisposition towards sin and in separation from you. So I wanna say thank you for loving us even while we are far away from you. Thank you for showing us mercy uh, that we don't deserve for the things that we've done. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the punishment for those sins so that we wouldn't have to. If you are uh, disconnected from God, then your prayers for God to forgive you and to save you from all of your sin. Thank him for sending his son to die on the cross and raise from the dead with new life for you. Ask him to give you that new life, to wash away your sin, to break the destructive cycles that you've inherited or picked up along the way. Maybe your prayer is God help us to see where we are most likely to step back into the sins that you've saved us from. Maybe your prayer should be God motivate us to be willing to make a radical commitment to obedience. Help us to not flirt with our sin, help us to take a more strict policy with ourselves and a more generous policy toward others. Help us to be willing to stand alone, to stand out or even suffer if that's what it takes to walk with you. Let your will be done in our hearts right now so that your will can be done through our lives later on. Thank you for setting us free from sin and calling us to a more faithful and beautiful way of life. And in Jesus' name we say, amen.